Hi, this is Wilson from Renew Church OC. Thanks for joining our podcast. After the pandemic, it's been easy to do Chipotle Church, where we get to choose how much church we want every week. Maybe I'll stay home this Sunday. I feel like opening my Bible today, but not tomorrow. I'll go to small group and not Sundays. Our City Monk series challenges this construct of church and pushes us to reorder our life around Jesus and the Sabbath. It's a call to live in contrast to a city that is busy and burnt out. Instead, we live unhurried lives, wrapping our daily and weekly schedule around being with Jesus. I hope you get a chance to check out our church on Sunday in Fullerton, California at 10 a.m. I hope you enjoy the series. Really excited to see all of you. My name is Pastor Wilson. Me and my wife got to uh, launch this church about eight years ago, and it's just a blessing and a privilege. Everyone who walks through the door, we really see you as a gift to our community as a child of God, and we want to get to know you. So really thankful for how Kristen invited you to buy the 16-gallon um, Costco <laughs> bulk purchase of our community in, in like all these different ways. Yeah, the last thing I wanted to do before we jump into a sermon today is to talk a little about a little bit about Ukraine. Uh, me and Becca t- touched base yesterday. And um, to update you, our church has been super generous. We've opened up about five of our homes to Ukrainian refugees, giving them space to live as we transition them into resettlement. And then also we have a few small groups who will go down to San Diego to help process Ukrainian refugees that are coming in from Mexico or landing in San Diego, which is one of the hubs. And so please uh, consider going with our small group. So they've opened up a few dates to facilitate that trip down to San Diego to care for and help process um, the families, the kids there. And also we're trying to use that to work in junction with the host families of our church to not only care for the Ukrainian refugees there, but to bring them into the host families of our church in order to uh, get them to the, to the airport and help them resettle. And so we've been praying for Ukraine over the last three months, and it's amazing to allow these prayers, by God's grace, to become tangible, to become people that we get to sit down with face-to-face, to have over dinner, to host. And so if these are things that you want to be a part of, it's hard to do those things on your own. And I think as a church and as a collaboration of churches, we get to extend our arms so much further than we could on our own. And lastly, I think about not only the churches coming together, but also there's the evil at work. There's uh, sex traffickers and, and, and gangs who want to take advantage of this vulnerable situation, whether it's in Ukraine, in Europe, or whether locally. And so this, this network of churches and the government has really leaned on us because it's so different for you or me to pull up in a church van and to say, I'm a pastor, we're a part of a church network, I know these people versus a stranger. And so um, what you're doing is really significant, what we get to do together. And so we want to invite you to participate in the community of our church. But we hope that the friendships and the community that we establish here will we'll be able to look back and see how we took ground uh, for God's kingdom, how we blessed lives and cared for people because of the community that we are. All right, um, speaking of community, if you're here for the first time, we do this thing where we break off into small groups and twice in our, in our Sunday service in order just to ask questions, get to know each other, and participate in each other's life. I think something that I was saddened by 
um, is being able to kind of go to church by going to AMC, where you occupy a seat, you watch a show, and you leave. I really hope that your experience here would be more than the stage, but being able to have conversations and pray for each other and get to know someone next to you. And so we're going to spend about five minutes. Um, this is the question we're sharing about today. What is something you've learned about yourself recently that's been surprising? Okay, what's something that you learned about yourself recently that's been surprising? And so we're just going to break off into groups of two, three, or four with the people around you. Make sure everyone's included so you're not traumatizing them from junior high lunches where they're sitting by themselves. And uh, we'll, we'll give you guys five minutes. I'll come back and we'll jump into the sermon today. All right, welcome back, everyone. Thanks for participating. Hope you had a good time. We'll get some time at the end of our um, sermon for you to finish this conversation and go into the next one. Too much participation. I'm just kidding. All right, when I think about something I've learned about myself, I think about my two kids. And I would say Liam just runs around with my soul. Like he, he embodies my little heart. And for a long time, I didn't think of myself as a sensitive person. I didn't think I was so emotionally connected. And then I look at Liam, I'm like, oh, you are the Wilson that didn't get pummeled 100 times in elementary school, right? Like you didn't have to grow calluses yet. And the way he connects with people, the way he motes, the way he's sensitive, I see so, I'm like rediscovering myself through my kid. I feel like it's super interesting to find other pieces of ourselves over the years. To, to know that we don't know ourselves fully and to desire a greater sense of self-awareness. When I look at, um, oh, sorry. When I look at the Bible and the way it talks about the heart, when the Bible uses this word heart, it's actually speaking of something far more than just our emotions. It's speaking about the reality of who we are, our true selves. It says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So your heart, out of your heart comes your speech, comes your actions, comes your values, comes your righteousness, your sins, your highs and lows. That's the reality of who you are. And the Bible gives language to the reality of who you are. But then it also talks about our false self, that there can be distance between who we are and who we present ourselves to be. Think of a network, networking event or even maybe meeting someone for the first time today. We have a part of us that we're presenting. And some of us, that presentation can be vastly different than what's going on in our own souls. And that's what Matthew 15 verse 8 says. These people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. He's speaking about the Pharisees. And he's speaking about this gulf between who they are externally and who they are internally. And I, maybe there's times where you've put up, put up a smile, but you're actually going through depression. Or you're nodding at someone's story, but you're really wanting to find an exit. And so that's our false self, uh, the version we present to others. And that disconnect between what we're presenting and who we actually are. And then our, there's our hidden self, which I'm the most fascinated by. What you don't know about yourself. And that growing in self-awareness. And the Bible gives language to that as well. The heart is deceitful above all things. Beyond cure. Who can understand it? So Jeremiah is thinking about his own soul. Who he is. And, and saying, I can't even understand 
my, myself fully. There's some great thinkers who have added to this. St. Augustine in the Confessions, which we're reading at 7 a.m. on Zoom, says, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? He prayed, Lord, grant that I may know myself, that I may know you. And John Calvin says this, our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of self. But as these are connected together by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the ones proceeds and gives birth to another. Meaning we grow in both knowing God and knowing ourselves. And when we know God, we know ourselves a little bit deeper. When we know ourselves, we know God a little bit deeper. And there's no cause and effect in a simplistic way because those two relationships are tied together in many ways. Today we're going to have a conversation about the heart between what I'm hoping are us and Jesus. He has this conversation with the Samaritan woman where he's excavating her heart. He's showing her who she is. And I believe that this morning God wants to show us who we are. But sometimes it's difficult to look at ourselves. You know, this is probably one of the most important sermons I've written over the 20 years of pastorship. It took me, I'd say, about 10 years to write this sermon. And so I say that because I want you to know it's extremely dense. It's not super entertaining like my other sermons. Um, but I believe that if you're willing to engage your mind and attention today, that you might find more of who you are and more of God. That you might rethink your spiritual life in ways that will grow you over the next 10 years. Um, and so I hope that you journey with me into your heart this morning. We're looking at John chapter 4, verse 4 to 10. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called um, Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Samaritans was, were like the mugbloods of the Jewish people. They were half Jewish and half Gentile. And the reason why the Jews despised them, often just calling them dogs, is because they saw the Samaritans as tainting and twisting the Jewish religion. They had infused it with the religion of their mother and father who wasn't Jewish. And so the Jews were extremely offended by the, that. If they were traveling from Judah to Jerusalem, they would go around Samaria, adding dozens of miles to their trip. But they didn't want to go through it because they didn't want to talk to Samaritans. But here we see Jesus breaking all kinds of religious, gender, and cultural norms. Not only is he going through Samaria and sitting with the Samaritan, he's sitting with a woman, which Jewish men never do. They never talk to anyone in public outside of their own family. Because you, other Jews would assume that they're soliciting um, sex if they talk to someone outside of their family. So here Jesus is sitting with a Samaritan, sitting with a woman, and asking her for a drink. 
And then we take this really simplistic scene of Jesus asking for water from a woman drawing out of a well into a really deep spiritual conversation. He leverages what's going on physically and he moves it into a spiritual metaphor. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as also his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, anyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will be in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing, uh, sir, give me this water so I don't have to be thirsty and keep coming here to draw water. So here I want us to think about these two forms of water. The first one I'm going to call well water. And what is, what, is she, what is Jesus saying about well water? He's saying that if you drink this water, uh-oh, let's go back. If you drink this water... Uh, you will be thirsty again. And then she keeps on saying, I have to keep coming here to draw water. So that's well water. And then when we think about living water, Jesus says that I will, it will become in you a spring of, of water welling up to eternal life. That's living water. And that you'll never be thirsty again. Okay, so we have two, these two categories of water that's becoming a metaphor, well water and living water. In well water, you'll be thirsty again, you'll have to keep drawing water. With living water, you'll never thirst, and it will be in us a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then as the woman is asking her, him for this water, thinking it's physical, thinking she won't have to ever have physical thirst again, he tells her, go call your husband and come back. And she says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the, na and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. So what's going on here? If you have your uh, piece of paper and pen, I would love for you to participate by picking that up and just drawing with me um, on your paper, okay? So the first thing we're going to draw is a heart. In the middle of the paper, for those of you who are type A, uh, the bottom half, right? And then on top of the right side of the heart, we're going to draw well water. So we're going to draw four triangles four squares with a little loop at the top to represent well water. And then on the other side, we're going to draw um, living water. Okay. And so in this conversation, when we hear about well water, why does Jesus pivot then to her dating and married life? Well, the first thing he's doing is he is showing her what her well water is. He's saying that your well water is, is your sin and idols. 
is the things that you keep going back to in order to satisfy your thirst. But where does this thirst come from? And this is where the sermon gets pretty heavy and deep. So there's thirst. Go ahead and write that down as well. And then there's fractures. All right, stay with me. So when we think about our sin, oftentimes we're thinking about it in a very external way to us. Like, oh, we did that. Or we had the action, we said that. But remember, out of all we are, everything that we do comes out of our hearts. So what's going on in our heart? There's this thirst that is inside of us that the sin and idolatry is trying to satisfy. It's trying to satisfy a thirst. That's why you struggle with your sin, and sometimes I don't get it. But it's because you have a different thirst inside of your soul. And when I share about my sin, it's very easy for you to be dismissive, but you don't, you don't have that thirst. So you don't want the same sin or the same idols that are, are beckoning and, and drawing me in. We have different thirsts. All of our sins are satisfying a thirst in our, in our hearts. It, there's a functional value to sin. There's a reason why we go to that addiction and idol over and over again. You know, when we were in the sexual addiction workshop with Roy Kim, he said that it's hard to let go of our addiction because it's like losing a close friend. Because our addiction soothes us, comforts us, numbs us from pain. Our addiction satisfies a thirst of belonging and acceptance and value. And so when we really decide to stop being addicted to something, we're actually losing something really important to us. It's like losing a close friend. So what do fractures look like? So fractures are where thirsts originate. And I'm superimposing this into the text, but there's a great James passage that speaks about this. Um, when I think about fractures, it's like, the traumas in our life, it's the neglect that we live through in childhood, it's the voids and emptiness of, of our heart that are unfilled. And when we think about our fractures, that's what elicits the thirst and then causes us to reach for something that satisfies it. So let me give you a possible background of the Samaritan woman. And let me also project my own story into, into it. Because as you men, and many of you know, I also struggle with sexual addiction. So maybe like, like me, um, she felt rejected by her parents, by, her, um, by other people in her life. You know, I think about growing up and, and it was really hard for me to connect and feel uh, loved by women, to feel nurtured by them. I've often felt rejected in my family, in my social life, with my teachers always kind of pushed to the side. So that's my fracture, right? And maybe that's her fracture. Maybe she felt rejected by her father. Maybe she felt rejected by her first boy for her, her first husband. Maybe she felt rejected by the peers in um, the school she grew up with, like I did. And so there's this deep, deep thirst for acceptance. And most of us have want to be accepted, but when it comes out of a fracture, it's an abnormal longing where you're willing to go to anything healthy or unhealthy in order to satisfy it. And that's why for me, as I'm reaching up over the course of many years, 
I've, I've gone to this well water of explicit material. And, you know, sex as a category satisfies so many aspects of thirst. It can give you value, ecstasy, belonging, the sense of nurture, and, of course, like, the lust part of it. But I think there's so much more to sexual addiction than just lust. For me, there's a sense of being accepted, um, of not being rejected. Like, that can't reject me. And at first, the thirst is satisfied. And all of our sins satisfies our thirst in that moment. It's immediate, we can control it, and we get reprieved. Reprieved from hurt, reprieved from uh, our triggers, reprieved from boredom. And yet, as we drink from well water, as it says in the passage, we have to go to it over and over again, that we get thirsty again. And my thought is that maybe it gives us another fracture, is that it corrodes more of our soul. The things that used to satisfy us don't anymore. And then our thirsts grow as well. Another fracture in my life when I think about it is uh, going through elementary school and feeling like a failure. I felt fifth grade. I couldn't bring home the report card uh, that other Asians did. And, um, and I think my report card was not only speaking about my failure, but it was also speaking about my mom's failure to be able to help me do better at school. And so we were both like defined by my elementary school life in terms of of failure. And so for me, failure is another really deep um, fracture in my soul. It goes, it runs super deep. And so what's my thirst? Well, I want to accomplish things. I want to be successful. I want to not fail. Like I'd rather, it feels like I'd rather die than fail sometimes. I don't want to face failure. And so um, what do I reach for in my well water? For me, I think that it's probably more of an idol than a sin. And idols are scary because it's socially accepted. And many times it's accepted in our Christian culture, so it becomes invisible. It's easy for me to fulfill this fracture of failure by the success of this church, by preaching, by gaining your approval and, and encouragement in, in the broken parts of me. To say, okay, I'm going to do more ministry. I want to grow it bigger. I want to see my small group expand. Um, I want to have a better Instagram account. But it's not really for the Lord. It, it, can, it can be not really for you. But it, it's just to fill, satisfy this longing and fill this fracture. I'm hoping to get you to a point where you can think about your sin, your longing, and your fractures. Our sins are pretty easy to identify, but usually we have these safeguards where we're not willing to um, move into the deeper parts of our heart. And that's what this woman is wrestling with. Sir, the woman said, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but the Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, the Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We, oh, whoa, what happened? Okay. What you do not know, um, 
for we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. They are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and he worships in spirit and truth. So here we see this initial argument uh, from the Samaritan woman. And what she's doing is she's building out distance between Jesus speaking directly into her heart, calling out her sin in well water, calling out the five husbands and the person she's living with now. And we oftentimes don't want to look inward. And some of the ways we avoid that, some of the ways we hide is that we could use religion. We could use religious titles and accomplishments and facades and even lines in order to say, I don't really want to journey deeper than this. I think about the many times where I prayed for forgiveness, but I, I prayed in a way of, of hiding. Like I said, God, forgive me so that I don't have to look at it anymore. Forgive me so that I could run away from myself. Forgive me so that I move on and then I'm starting to build this gulf between the two parts of me. This woman is using this historic religious argument to put something in front of Jesus, hoping for distance between her and him. You know, um, if anyone can hide, it's me. I really hate talking about my addiction. Um, I'd rather hide it behind my title as a lead pastor. I'd rather hide behind my accolades, right? Like I helped evaluate church planners a couple weeks ago. I'm speaking to our denominational uh, pastors in two weeks. Uh, I'm helping to lead the staff meeting at EV Free Fullerton and doing a devotional for them this week. Pretty cool things. I can, my Instagram account looks pretty clean. I have a really fat, cute toddler, right? But how does Jesus call us? He calls us in spirit and truth. Spirit meaning that he calls us to look at him in the eyes and to be in an intimate relationship with him. A person-to-person -person relationship without the religious facade and rituals where it's you and Jesus. And then he calls us to truth, to laying our hearts in front of him and to allow him to examine us and to heal us. And to forgive us. Lead Pastor Wilson really doesn't understand the gospel or need grace. Instagram Wilson is not on his knees before the cross. You know how the gospel penetrates our heart? It's in those places of shame and sin and addiction. That when we open up the crevices of our heart to the Lord, we're brought to our knees in those spaces where we feel weak, where we feel incapacitated, where we don't know how to get out, where we see the wounds of our soul and we're inviting Jesus to see it too. Jesus says, I haven't come for the righteous, I've come for sinners. And the religious leaders are like, well, I'm righteous. But the people who are healed and forgiven are the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the Samaritan women are the parts of us where we are saying, God, I need you. That's how Jesus enters into our life. So let me challenge you and give you just a few minutes 
to, to retreat and to ask Jesus to help you look at your own soul. To, to look at your sin and, of course, and we ask for forgiveness. That's the first thing we do. But in the forgiveness and love, are we walking away and not doing an autopsy report? Or are we saying, Jesus, because you love and forgive me, I get to walk deeper into my heart. I get to ask the hard questions of where my, what, what is it I'm longing for in my sin. And what are the fractures that are originating those longings. And so if you're willing to, I would love for you to, in that piece of paper, just start filling that in for your own life. What is the sin that you're struggling with? And then to hold Jesus' hand in love and forgiveness and ask, what are the thirsts that is satisfying and where are the thirsts from? This is a 10-year thing, but I can give us three minutes. And I would love for us to get started in that process. Okay? In three minutes, I'll come back up and I'll do... Um, Another 10 minutes of preaching. <clears throat> so I was talking to um, Jonathan this week about this thing we're doing. And I'm like, we're just kind of talking about how the hardest work in our life is this work. This work dwarfs <laughs> um, our, the work we've put into our ministries, the work we've put into even our families. Like raising kids is really difficult. But going inward is so hard. And, I, and yet, I hope that you would um, be willing to start walking into the work that God has for you. Um, so this woman replies, <clears throat> I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he, cr when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. You can count on one hand the times Jesus reveals himself as Messiah to the people all around him. Like his closest disciples. And then a few other spatterings of people. He doesn't do this often. He often tells people to be quiet about him being the Messiah. And to this Samaritan woman, he reveals who he is. This is the heart of our God. But he not only talks about him being Messiah... He goes a step further and he says, I am he. In the Greek, it's simply I am. So there's this claim of divinity here. I am who I am, as God says to Moses. When, when God is revealing himself to Moses, Moses says, give me your name. Because in the ancient world, the name of God would speak to his dominion over different categories of life. Whether it's the harvest or war or having children. When you knew the name of God, you knew what to appeal to him for. And when God says, I am who I am, what he's saying is that I am the God of all things. I am the God of every dominion on this earth. And when he says, I am, he's also saying, they are not. That none of these other gods and idols and sins, none of the other well waters will truly satisfy you. Will fill in that gulf in your soul. Only me, I am. Lastly, the woman says, um, Jesus, let's see, then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking to her? So, of course, the disciples were shocked that he would talk to a Samaritan, talk to a woman, but they knew better to question him. Then leaving her water jar, 
the woman went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of their town and made their way towards him. So after Jesus reveals to her who, she, who he is, that he is the Messiah, he is the living water, he is the God of all things, it says in this really small, almost obscure description that she leaves her water jar. But I love this because I believe it's symbolic of her leaving the well water, her leaving the men that she had gone to over and over to drink acceptance and value and beauty from. And she's saying, I want Jesus. You know, there's this throwback from Isaiah where God is telling the Israelites, he's condemning them, saying, you have left the spring of living water for broken cisterns that can hold no water. He's grieving. He's saying, you have left the spring of living water for broken cisterns that leak, that pour out, that can hold no water. And here we have a Samaritan woman who does the opposite. She leaves the water jug. She leaves her broken cisterns. She leaves her sins and her idols. And she meets the living water of Jesus. And not only does she meet him, the whole city meets him. Why? Because the living water is a spring of life. It's a spring. When, when we drink from the well water, we, want, we have to go back for more. But when we drink from the living water, it's like dr drinking from a river. It's overflowing. It not only satisfies us, but it satisfies a city. It's a spring of living water. She comes out of the town in the middle of the day trying to avoid all the other women and their gossip because she feels like a prostitute. She's dr drawing water at noon. But she runs back to the town as a prophet. And she gives other people the life that she's been given. So when we go to Jesus, instead of well water, not only does he fill our souls. Oh, no, wrong, this one. Okay, let's go this one. Not only does he fill us. Not only does he mend the brokenness in our hearts, but he gives us enough so that we're healing and bringing other people to the same Jesus and telling them there's a Messiah. There's living water that can fill you as well. That's how we become better husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and friends is that we are filled with Jesus and we are filling the lives of others, that he's the spring of living water. You know, I think about um, going to well water and how even if you cut yourself off from one addiction, you, the thirst and the, the, the fractures are still there. And so it just pushes you from one addiction to another. If you, don't, if you don't resolve the fractures in your soul. I was watching this Oprah episode from like, you know, 15 years ago. And um, she's interviewing these three women who used to be morbidly obese. They got surgery. It reduced their stomach so that they could only eat a healthy amount of food. And all of them became healthy physically. But the reason why she was interviewing them was because all of them had picked up another severe addiction. 
One woman was gambling away all of her money. Another woman was sleeping with everybody. An another person had another severe addiction because if, even if we guard ourselves from that one addiction, but the thirst is there and we don't redirect it, we'll just go to another sin or another idol. As you guys know, I have all kinds of like blockers on my phone and TV and laptop and iPads, right? And what I think, how I think about it is that it's trying to course my desires to Jesus. It's cutting me off from well water so that I, I can take the thirst when I block myself from my addiction, the thirst grows and becomes consuming and it's not satisfied. But how do I sit there with that thirst and say, but Jesus, but Jesus can satisfy me and wait on him and give it to him and ask him for help. The last, I'll close with this story. I'm really grateful for Sean and having conversations with him and how open he is with this story to our community. And he'll be sharing it firsthand at baptism today. Um, but last week we talked about how four years ago he was struggling with major depression and suicide. And he actually had a date in mind where he would end his life. And today as he's getting baptized and seeing God's redemptive story in his life, the way he's come and been well water to him and has brought him in community and lifted him out of depression, he was telling me how when he was thinking about ending his life all those years ago, he thought about doing it in the ocean, just swimming as far as he can and not being able to come back. And he says, today or next Sunday, um, I'll be baptized in the ocean. And I'll be able to experience another kind of death. A death to my fractures, a death to my old way of life, a death to my sin. And be able to come out experiencing the resurrection of Jesus in new life. When I think about Easter and why it's so important, I think about Jesus resurrecting from the dead. And because he's alive, he's still speaking to each of us. Because he's alive, he's still healing each of our hearts. Because he's alive, he's able to still fill and satisfy our thirsts. Because he's alive, he's able to have that same conversation that he had with the Samaritan woman, with me, with Sean, with each of you. Saying, I am living water. Come to me. God, thank you so much for this morning. For rising from the dead. And for coming to us. For coming to us this morning in conversation. For coming to us to heal us and forgive us and love us. And I pray that this morning we would find a resurrected Jesus. A Jesus who's speaking and touching our lives and healing our hearts. A Jesus who's excavating the soul that you already know inside and out. But as we unveil it to you, we get to find you there too. God, I'm thankful for the work that you've done in my life. I know I have a long way to go. Sean has a long way to go. But God, bring us all on that journey to go deeper with you. To find the places of our hearts that are still going to sin. And as they're going to it, we can say, oh, Jesus, there's parts of me that you are not, that I am.
would I find you to be God here too, to satisfy me here. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're going to take communion together. If you're a believer, I invite you to participate. If not, we would love to pray with you and share about how you can know Jesus um, and, and become a follower of him. But when I think about the cross, I think about this invitation of forgiveness and love and being heart to heart. And how when he comes to us, he comes to us in bleeding out and laying his life down. He comes to us in weakness. He doesn't meet us to conquer us. He doesn't meet us to dominate or to usurp our will. He comes by lying on a cross and by in weakness. And as the kingdom of God comes to us in weakness, how do we meet God's kingdom in weakness instead of strength? in our fractures instead of what we have together. So as you participate in communion today, would you bring the places where you need the Savior the most to him this morning, asking for his body and his blood to forgive you and to give you righteousness. Let's take communion today. We break off into groups one more time. And um, I just encourage you to share as much as you're willing to. But if you, if you went ahead and drew uh, the drawing with me, consider sharing your drawing hearts with each other. And then as we pray for each other, we're asking, what are the longings that you're waiting for Jesus to fill? And what is the fracture that you want him to heal? And I would love for us to pray for each other to be satisfied and to experience the living water that he offers all of us. So again, we'll go back into, into a five-minute time of sharing and prayer. But you can extend that out as the worship's going. I think these moments are the most important moments for me. Because I believe that God wants to take this message and speak to each of you specifically through it. To take his word and to allow it to come alive uh, in your own life. So we'll give five minutes to process, to pray. And then we'll invite the worship team up to close out our service. Hi, this is Pastor Wilson again. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If our sermons have been a blessing to you, I'd love for you to consider supporting our church and ministry. As we approach the end of the year, we're asking our church family to consider investing into a special fund that support our interns and seminarians. Renew has a vision of investing in pastors for the next generation through our internship program. And your financial partnership can help set up a young pastor or missionary to faithfully serve the Lord for the next 30 to 40 years. I often dream about what Irwin or Kevin will do for the kingdom of God through their 30s, 40s, and 60s. Our goal is to raise $50,000 over the season. Would you consider joining us? You can give through PayPal or Venmo or by sending a check. All the information is on the description section of the podcast. Or you can visit our website. And your investment is tax deductible. Thank you so much for being a part of our church family. If you're ever in the Fullerton, California area, please drop by into our Sunday service. I'd love to meet you. God bless.